0: Today, I'm going to share with you the best way I've found for individuals with borderline dynamics to recover and to emerge into a much more integrated, stable, grounded, secure, peaceful, joyful way to live. Today, I offer hope because so much growth is possible if those with borderline dynamics understand themselves accurately. And if others can deeply understand them as well, it takes work, it takes dedication, but such change, a really radical transformation is possible with the right help, with the right relationships, with the right resources. And we are going to get into what it takes to recover from borderline personality disorder today. And I'm not just talking about, quote, managing symptoms, end quote. I really don't like the idea of just managing the symptoms. I want a lot more than that for my clients with borderline dynamics. I want much more than just managing symptoms. I want healing for them. I want integration, wholeness, peace. I want resolution of the underlying causes of the borderline symptoms, not just interventions that help at the surface level of symptoms. We need to get to the root. We need to get to the cause. Words of hope from Blaise Aguirre and Jillian Galen. Borderline personality disorder is not a lifelong condition and the majority of people with BPD will not live lives of unremitting suffering. Your life will get better. Rachel Ryland from her book, Get Me Out of Here, My Recovery from Borderline Personality Disorder, quote, most important, the reason I wrote this book is to serve as proof that miracles do happen, that love can and does heal wounds, that there is hope for those with the courage and the fortitude to seek healing. John Gunderson and Perry Hoffman, they wrote a book in 2016 called Beyond Borderline True Stories of Recovery from Borderline Personality Disorder. And there were two dozen short accounts, 24 short accounts from those who have recovered from borderline personality disorder. And finally, this quote from Andrea Rosenhaft, who is a licensed clinical social worker. People who struggle with BPD are not manipulative or attention seeking. We are suffering and have never been given the tools to communicate our pain effectively through words, so we do so with self-destructive behaviors. I choose to work with clients with BPD because I've been there myself, And I know how much they are suffering. The work is difficult. But if the therapeutic alliance can weather the ups and downs, it's a privilege to see a client with BPD come into their own. And you know what? I absolutely agree with that. I absolutely agree that it is a beautiful honor and privilege to accompany a person to walk with them as they recover from these symptoms of borderline personality disorder. And it is most certainly possible. I am Dr. Peter Malinowski, Also known as Dr. Peter, I am your host and guide in this Interior Integration for Catholics podcast, and I am so glad to be with you. I am a trauma therapist, a podcaster, a writer, the co-founder and president of Souls and Hearts at soulsandhearts.com. I'm a clinical psychologist, but most of all, I am a beloved little son of God, a passionate Catholic who wants to help you to taste and see the height and depth and breadth and warmth and the light of the love of God. Especially God, your father, and Mary, your mother, your spiritual parents, your primary parents. I am here to help you embrace your identity as a beloved little child of God and Mary. That is what this Interior Integration for Catholics podcast is all about. That is what Souls and Hearts is all about. And to bring that about, to live out this mission, I bring you new ways of understanding yourself, fresh conceptualizations informed by the best human formation resources in psychology always solidly rooted in the authoritative teachings of the Catholic Church. We are looking to remove the human formation hindrances, the obstacles that keep you from having that secure foundation for the spiritual life, that keep you from being able to relate deeply and intimately with others and with God and Mary. Any obstacle that you have, any human formation deficit that you have, and relating with anyone else, including yourself, you're going to bring that into your relationship with God. You're going to bring that into your relationship with Mary. It's part of the way that you relate. And so this human formation work is not some sort of self-absorbed, narcissistic, navel-gazing exercise, some sort of psychological day spa where we tell ourselves that we're okay. No, it's really about equipping us to carry out the two great commandments, to love the Lord our God, with all our heart, all of our being, every fiber of our being, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is episode 128, titled Recovering from Borderline Personality with IFS. This one is released on December 18th, 2023. I am so glad you are with me so we can continue our series on borderline personality dynamics. We started this series out in episode 125. And that one was titled, Borderline Personality According to the Conventional Secular Experts. And then we move to episode 126, Borderline Personalities, Your Questions Answered by Dr. Greg Bataro. And then episode 127, Understanding Borderline Personalities Through Internal Family Systems. I'm going to say this clearly up front. If you have significant borderline dynamics, you need good therapy period full stop if you have significant borderline dynamics if you especially if you have the disorder borderline personality disorder if you meet diagnostic criteria for that you need good therapy you need good counseling the staff at the clearview women's center in their article can i manage my borderline personality disorder without therapy say quote despite dedication or the desire to recover it is unlikely that a person with borderline personality disorder will overcome bpd on their own without the guidance and insight that the therapeutic process can offer End quote. It's really important to get the outside help you need if you're actually meeting the diagnostic criteria. So let's just get that on the table right away. Love Heals, this is not the domain of self-help books or YouTube videos or posts on Instagram. You're not going to heal yourself by reading tweets on Twitter or posts on X as we call it now doesn't work that way. You need a relationship. You need the relationship with a good therapist who can accompany you through the intensity of the healing process. So let's do a brief review, right? Brief review, just to get people up to speed so that this in, this episode can stand alone. In episode 125, Borderline Personality According to the Conventional Secular Experts I discussed different ways of doing therapy. Dialectical behavior therapy by Marsha Linehan, mentalization-based treatment by Anthony Bateman and Peter Fonagy, psychodynamic treatment, that's the errors of Freud, family therapy, medication therapy, all of these are based on the idea that there is a single unified personality. And that's a real disadvantage. That's a real disadvantage when you're dealing with borderline personality dynamics, because that's not actually a personality disorder. That's a disorder of many personalities that are not well integrated. Now, I believe we all have multiple personalities inside. That's not pathogenic. That's not a sign of some sort of particular disorder. I think Adam and Eve, at the moment that they were created, had multiple parts inside so it's not to say that everybody has multiple personality disorder want to be really clear about that but it's a real disadvantage in dealing with borderline personality dynamics to be locked into this single homogenous unified personality idea this mono mind and i talked about the difficulties of that in episodes 116 and 117 of this podcast I also discussed schema-focused therapy because that brings in different modes, different ways of operating. That one is by Jeffrey Young. Individuals with borderline presentations have four dysfunctional life schemas according to schema-focused therapy that maintain these difficulties in functioning. There's a detached protector, a punitive parent, an abandoned-slash-abused child, and an angry-slash-impulsive child. So here, what we're seeing is that he's bringing in these different these different schemas, these different modes or ways of operating, right? And change occurs through a range of behavioral and cognitive and experiential techniques that focus on the therapeutic relationship, daily life, past experiences, including traumatic experience. So so here, the schema therapy is an exception because they don't subscribe to that single unified personality idea, which is part of the reason why I think that has been successful. Now, Let's talk a little bit about, since a therapist is needed, what are the qualities of a good therapist for working with someone who has borderline dynamics? Who do you need for somebody like this? And there was a good article by Erin Johnston called The Qualities of a Great Therapist for BPD. It came out on September 30th, 2021 on VeryWellMind.com. And she lists these criteria, that the therapist be reassuring, providing a sense of felt safety. That the therapist be trustworthy. That the therapist be engaging, encouraging. And this one's really important too. That the therapist follow a structure. That the therapist not be just winging it. And that there is clear expectations for the therapy for both the client and the therapist. It's important that the therapist be empathetic and that the therapist be genuine. And here's a quote from Kelsey Fife, who said, People with BPD are highly attuned to the attitudes and moods of the people around them. And that would include therapists, obviously. Their barometer for other people's emotions is sensitive and often accurate. This makes it both a gift and a curse for the BPD person. The curse is that they are so easily influenced by the emotional states of other people. The gift, however, is that they are often highly empathetic, compassionate, and understanding some of the most intensely loving, kind, and understanding people I have ever met are people with BPD. Totally agree with that. Totally agree. There's some gifts here that really need to be integrated, to be harmonized. But what I want to draw from this quote is that their barometer for other people's emotions is sensitive and often accurate. Very dialed in, very sensitive to the experience of other people. And it is so critically important that therapists be honest with all their clients, that they not tell clients even little white lies. It is especially important with those with BPD characteristics. Never, ever lie to a client therapists, especially never, ever lie to a borderline client. It's really, really going to undermine the therapy. Another thing that Aaron Johnston gives us is to be willing to do some education, to be willing to explain the therapy to the clients, and to always hold good behavioral boundaries. Appropriate boundaries are really important. Got to hold those boundaries. No sexual overtures, no business relationships, no like, no anything outside the therapy that could compromise the quality of the therapeutic work also to be open-minded and to be receptive. So those are the qualities of A Great Therapist for for BPD by Aaron Johnston. Thought that was really good. But I want to get into this even more deeply and in an even more real way. Now, I have a lot of freedom when I talk about these topics. I'm self-employed. I've got my own private practice. I'm employed by souls and hearts. If I'm going to get fired, I'm going to get fired one client at a time, or I'm going to get fired one RCC member, one Resilient Catholics community member at a time, There's no institutional oversight to govern what I say and what I can't. I can get into controversies. I can let you know what my my opinions really are. I don't have to be politically correct in the things that I say. So I'm going to give you the straight stuff today. And today we're going to talk about what I have experienced in my decades of clinical practice as a psychologist with those with borderline dynamics. Now, the very best thing I've ever found for working with folks with borderline personality dynamics is internal family systems grounded in a Catholic understanding of the human person. I spent years looking for the best therapeutic approaches for the so-called, quote, toughest cases, end quote, so that I could work with almost any client without losing a deep sense of peace and competence without burning out. There had to be a way to help. There can't be such a situation that people are just lost. There's nothing you can do all this all this symptom management's the best we can do. It's as good as it gets. I'm not accepting that. There's got to be a way to help. Those with the so-called borderline personality disorder were so often maligned, criticized, demeaned, sometimes even ridiculed by mental health professionals. And let me give you an example of some of the attitudes from when I was in graduate school of borderline personality disordered folks. Um, they would say, Theodore Milan in his 1996 book, which I really like in a lot of ways, Disorders of Personality, DSM-4, and Beyond Second Edition, said, Borderlines are notoriously difficult patients for therapists. They run through the whole gamut of emotions in therapy, and their erratic and frequently threatening behavior stir many therapists to react negatively. Because the risk of burnout is so high, therapists should limit the number of borderline patients in their caseload if possible. This having been said, however, it should also be noted that therapy work with The borderline can prove to be a gratifying experience. So if we go back 20 years before I was trained, Anthony Pantolino, in his article, 10 Erroneous Therapist Beliefs, 10 Optimistic Therapist Beliefs, and 10 Hopeful Patient Beliefs in Treating Borderline Personality Disorder said, in my professional training in the early 1970s, I was taught that borderlines were not treatable that they did not get better and that they only sucked the lifeblood out of the best intentioned therapist. It was common practice to hear from my supervisors back then that if a therapist decided to treat a BPD patient, then only one patient at a time should be treated in a single practice. Okay, so you can see lots of, lots of criticism, lots of warnings here about borderline personality disorder, the folks that carry this. And I think there are three reasons in the natural realm that why those with borderline dynamics have been so stigmatized by and so bruised and wounded by mental health professionals three reasons why these attitudes have persisted even to the present day the first is a lack of understanding of those with borderline personality dynamics The second is a lack of professional training and development on the part of the therapist. And the third is a lack of human formation in the therapist. A lack of human formation in the therapist. So let's go back and look at these three reasons why people with borderline dynamics have been so poorly understood in the mental health community. Why is that? So many mental health professionals historically have not understood those with borderline dynamics because they don't really see the borderline client in multiple dimensions. They only see the surface. They only see the symptoms. They don't see the person. They don't see beyond the surface. Marsha Linehan, in her book, Cognitive Behavioral Treatment of Borderline Personality Disorder, says, quote, many, if not most, therapeutic errors are assessment errors. That is, they are therapeutic responses based on faulty understanding and assessment of the problem at hand, End quote. Many therapeutic errors are, are assessment errors. It's a failure to understand. It's a failure to accurately evaluate. And then the responses are based on those misperceptions of the client with the borderline dynamics. So many clinicians expect borderline clients to be like other clients who are not as traumatized. And so many clinicians cannot attune very well to clients with borderline dynamics. And why is that? Well, some clinicians have experienced borderline personality dynamics themselves And we had that quote from Andrea Rosenhaft at the beginning in the lead in. But most have no phenomenological conception of what it's like from a personal experience to go through the kind of living hell that people with borderline dynamics experience on a regular basis. They really don't know what it's like. So many clinicians do not know what it's like, and they don't have the power of imagination to really inform them about what it's like inside a borderline client. Most therapists are also wedded to the single personality model, which is a terrible fit for understanding the fragmented internal experience of those with borderline dynamics. Again, we discussed that in episodes 116 and 117 of this podcast. Clinicians may also expect that the client is going to help them understand the client. The client is going to show the clinician who the client is but those with borderline dynamics don't understand themselves very well they struggle with this really unstable sense of identity as we talked about in the in episodes 125 and episodes 127 so in consequence those clients with the borderline characteristics they can't tell the therapist who they are the therapist has to be able to attune. The therapist, in some ways, has to to know the borderline client better than the borderline client knows herself or himself. A lack of understanding. This is that first reason in the natural realm why those with borderline dynamics have been stigmatized and bruised and wounded by mental health professionals. When you deeply understand someone with borderline dynamics, when you get to what's behind those powerful emotions, what underlies those extreme beliefs, those thoughts, those impulses, the intense fear, the anger, when you get to what's below that, when you are honored and privileged to enter into that person's world, it all makes sense. It all makes sense. The story all hangs together if you can get deep enough. But rarely. And the treatment of borderlines, do do the therapists get deep enough? Because it takes time and perseverance and a lot of work and skill and some other things that I'm going to talk about for the therapist to be invited in and for the therapist and the client to be able to make that difficult journey together. These internal experiences, these borderline dynamics, they are not random. In fact, they become quite predictable if you understand what's going on behind the surface below the surface but so often clinicians do not attune to their borderline clients well enough to reach that depth of understanding and connection there's a lack of understanding why well that brings us to our second reason a lack of professional development it is vitally important that clinicians always be learning and growing in their professional development continuing education classes seminars Conferences, trainings, workshops, personal reading, supervision, consultation. We need to be keeping up with the developments and the advances in our field. I've learned far, far more since leaving my six years of graduate school than I ever learned while I was a doctoral student. And some clinicians, unfortunately, spend very little time keeping up with the field. Many times, clinicians do not have a good conceptual model of therapy to guide the work they do. They are flying. By the seat of their pants. They are just winging it. They can't give an accurate conceptual model that's based in some established way of doing therapy. They're just going with gut instincts. And while that can work for a small subset of highly intuitive therapists, it's not the best way for most of us to do it. And even those that are highly intuitive, you want to have a set of checks and balances with a model that you can go back to. So many clinicians do not have a conceptual model of the human person either. They don't have a working anthropology. So some clinicians default to, quote, treating symptoms, end quote, rather than thinking of themselves as working with and being with persons who have needs. Now, some prominent therapy models exacerbate this issue of, of not having a conceptual model of the human person. For example, in their 2020 article in the journal Theoretical Psychology titled Unconscious Processes in Aaron Beck's Cognitive Therapy, Reconstruction and Discussion, authors Monica Romanowska and Bartolomej Dobrinski argue that in cognitive behavioral therapy, the founder Aaron Beck's quote, conceptualization of the unconscious ignores contradictory conscious. And unconscious representations and attitudes and offers no systematic model of basic needs and the conflicts between them. End quote. All right, let's listen to that again. What's going on in cognitive therapy according to these authors' estimation? Because they did a review of all of his work. They wanted to see what how does Aaron Beck handle the unconscious in cognitive therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy? They said, his conceptualization of the unconscious ignores contradictory conscious and unconscious representations of attitudes and offers no systematic model of basic needs and the conflicts between them. In other words, cognitive behavioral therapy disconnected from the unconscious. And I'll tell you what, that was my experience in studying CBT in my grad school in the 90s. You have these, quote, irrational cognitions, end quote, and you work to change them into better thoughts and behaviors. There was no curiosity about how these, quote, irrational cognitions, end quote, how they came about in the first place. No discussion of that. They were just assumed to be random epiphenomena of consciousness just floating around in the passages of the mind, just needs to be cleaned up, just needs to be set right. It's a very simple model. Negative thoughts lead to negative feelings, which lead to negative behaviors. So let's change all those negative patterns to positive ones. Doot, 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 doot. Yeah, there was no holistic integrated model of a person in CBT, no underlying model of who a person is. CBT prides itself on being problem-focused and solution-oriented, so such concerns about the unconscious and the history of these things, it's not that prominent. Now, all of that being said, and I still have, you can tell, I've got some bitterness about all those years of studying cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Feel like I got ripped off in graduate school. I was sold a bill of goods in terms of that actually being, you know, something that could work at the depth. And it's fine to do that sort of stuff if what you're interested is superficial symptom management. If you're, if that's what you're trying to do, and if if you're really caught up in, oh, all the literature, you know, it says that the cognitive behavioral therapy is the most effective therapy. Blah 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 blah. Yeah. Well, you start diving into that literature, you're going to start to see that they're measuring symptoms. They're not looking at structural change. It's harder and harder to measure the things that are most important. It's easy to measure symptoms. It's hard to measure the deep structural change. And in fact, sometimes when people are getting better, their symptoms are getting worse because things are coming up and they're generating symptoms and now you can work with them. But I do want to say that there are some CBT clinicians who are excellent clinicians who have within themselves a model of the human person, who have within themselves a model of using CBT and its techniques in a way that connects deeply and and, and resounds at depth with clients, and their clients do get better. Even at depth, not just symptom management. So I want to be really clear that it depends much more on the clinician. Than it does on the particular CBT that they're that they're doing, right? So there are ways to to sort of salvage that. I would also argue that graduate programs in psychology and counseling contribute to the lack of development in this major way. They don't stick to one or maybe two therapeutic modalities. They give they give their students a little bit of several therapy approaches, right? A little bit of CBT some emotion focus therapy for a semester. Oh, let's do a little course on interpersonal therapy. Let's bring in some humanistic therapy, a, sem- a semester of gestalt therapy. Let's get a little psychodynamic therapy in there. And that would be like a language student taking a semester of French, then a semester of Dutch, then a semester of Swahili, and then a semester of Vietnamese and thinking they could somehow speak and understand a language. They can't speak any of those languages well and these students sometimes came out and they would come to me for interviews for practicum because I was a practicum site for a lot of years, 15, uh, tw- almost 20 years. I worked with graduate students on a regular basis and they would come in and they wouldn't know any of these systems very well. They wouldn't know any therapeutic approach very well. And I would ask them, yeah, so what therapeutic modality do you use? What, what kind of approach do you use? And they say, well, I'm integrative. I'm, I, I'm eclectic. I draw from a lot of different I, different therapeutic approaches. And what that generally meant, to be honest with these students, is they didn't know any of them. They didn't know how to do therapy really at all. Now, again, I wouldn't expect them to, especially if they're, you know, a second-year graduate student coming out on a first practicum. But I don't think the graduate programs do a very good job at all of consistently teaching one major system so that these students can speak one therapeutic language. All right. So that's the second reason, a lack of professional development in the therapist. A lack of professional development in the therapist can really compromise the capacity of the therapist to care for clients with borderline dynamics. Okay, so the first two reasons in the natural realm why those with borderline dynamics have been bruised and wounded by mental health professionals, one, a lack of understanding and attunement, the second, a lack of professional training. But now we're getting to the big one. This is the big one. The big one is the lack of human formation in the therapist, and this is the one that people do not talk about. This is a more fundamental reason. Now, I'm not here to judge therapist souls, but we have to acknowledge a reality. We have to acknowledge this dirty little secret in the field that many therapists, like other people, are really lacking in their own human formation. All right, so what am I talking about with this human formation? I spent a lot of time on a definition of human formation from episode 63 of this podcast titled Human Formation, the Critical Missing Element. Here is how I define human formation. Human formation is the lifelong process of natural development aided by grace by which a person integrates all aspects of his interior emotional, cognitive, relational, and bodily life, all his natural faculties in an ordered way conformed with right reason and natural law so that he is freed from natural impediments to trust God as his beloved child and to embrace God's love. Then in return, because he possesses himself, he can love God, neighbor, and himself with all his natural being in an ordered, intimate, personal, and mature way. Human formation is all of the natural things that we need to be able to love ourselves, to love our neighbor, and to love God in an ordered way. It's the formation that has to happen on that natural level. Graduate programs in psychology and in counseling usually don't really consider the person of their students. They're focused on professional development. They're not focused on human formation. They're not focused on depth. And on the one hand, I totally get it. It's hard to do that. You can't do that in a classroom model. You can't do that if you are, you know, doing these these classes in groups and so forth. It comes from a one-on-one, developing, trusting relationships, continued engagement with the student. And they might get some of that in their supervision sessions with their clinical supervisors. They might get a little bit of that with their mentors or their advisors in the program but so often it goes by the wayside. There's not really a seeing of these students at depth. Yet this human formation is so critical because as Gene who who is a professional baseball player and manager, said, you can't lead anyone else further than you have gone yourself. Therapy, counseling, they are ways of working in this human formation. They're not the only ways. They don't have some sort of monopoly on human formation, but they are certainly these ways of working in human formation. And you can't give what you don't have. There's a lot of reasons why therapists get caught and struggle with borderlines because of something that is disordered in their own human formation. I have seen this over and over and over again. And I discussed this for three hours in a webinar called Of Beams and Specs, Therapist-Focused Consultation. I did this for the Catholic Psychotherapy Association. You can, uh, you can buy it from them. Just look it up, Of Beams and Specs, Therapist-Focused Consultation. Uh, you can buy it for 60 bucks. If you're a member of the CPA, you can buy it for 30 bucks. And there are demonstrations where I work live with therapists' human formation. It's a model I developed. I call it therapist-focused consultation, or TFC. Traditionally, in the mental health fields, the professors and the consultants and the supervisors and the teachers, they focused on the inner life and dynamics of the clients of their therapist trainees and consultees and students. I argue that the nearly exclusive focus on the client and on the techniques and the skills and the protocols is often an obstacle to good client care. It's a hurdle because I think the number one thing that holds therapists back is their own formation as human beings. It's not their professional development. It's not a lack of training or skills or continuing education. Those things are all relatively easy to get. It's Their own unresolved trauma. It's their own deficits in their own human formation. Yet all this training and all this case conceptualization and all this supervision and all this consultation is all focused on the client, the client's contributions to the therapeutic relationship. It assumes that. It's the borderline client's issues that make progress in the therapy more difficult. It's the borderline client's resistances that are getting in the way of the therapeutic success. It's the borderline client's emotional dysregulation that is stymieing the process. It's the borderline client's intense and shifting transferences that are bogging down the work. It's the borderline client's defense mechanisms and maladaptive coping strategies that are derailing the therapy. It's the borderline client who is sabotaging the work, the masochism, the self-defeating behavior, the avoidance, we have all kinds of labels always so that we can condemn borderline clients and blame them for the failure of the therapy. And in traditional consultation, that's what we call case conceptualization. What is going on with the borderline client? The client, the client, the client, the client. It's all about the client. And okay, in one way, it makes sense. The borderline client is the one who needs help, in quotes, presumably. At least it's the client that showed up at the consultee therapist's office asking for something, needing some kind of help. We should help the client. The client has the problem. The therapist has the expertise. The therapist has the training. And there's all this focus on getting the spec out of the eye of the client. I say, let's get the beam out of the therapist's eye. This focus on the client follows the medical model. It focuses on the the patient in a medical setting where psychiatry originated. Yes, the client can make poor choices. The client can act out and the therapist can't unilaterally make the client better. The client's intellect is involved. The client's will is involved. But whenever the therapist loses a sense of peace, whenever the therapist gets destabilized and off balance, whenever the therapist gets rattled, that's something within the Therapist getting activated. The client doesn't have the power to steal the piece of the therapist. The client doesn't have that much power. What the client can do is tap into, activate, trigger something that's already in the therapist. Clients with borderline presentations are especially adept at activating therapists, at triggering their unresolved internal issues. These clients have a great sense of how to get under the skin of their therapist to try to signal the intensity of the distress that they're experiencing. This is what IFS founder Dick Schwartz calls the gift of the Tor mentor. Tormentor, T-O-R hyphen mentor. Those people in our lives who torment us, who challenge us, who trigger us, who activate our parts, who get under our skin, who evoke shame and anger and sorrow or fear within us, who can make our lives really, really uncomfortable, who threaten our sense of equilibrium. But those same people are in the very best position to teach us what we need to know to heal and to be more integrated. They pull for our parts to come forward. They pull for our parts to blend with us. They teach us so much about ourselves. Tormentors can be among our most precious allies because they make us aware of what there is inside of us that needs our loving attention most. Richard Schwartz says, in this process, I've tried to let my most disturbing clients become my best teachers. They're my tormentors. By tormenting, they mentor me because they trigger key wounds and defenses that I need to heal. Also, they present ample opportunities for me to see what happens when I don't take the bait and instead remain self-led. In this age of highly technical therapies, manualized methodologies, pharmaceutical propaganda, and of course the managed care-generated atmosphere of therapy light, it's hard to remember the healing potential of your open-hearted presence. That's what borderline clients need your open hearted presence. Borderline clients are great tormentors, and that's a gift to us. I love it when my supervisees have clients with borderline dynamics or other clients that they find really challenging because it reveals the things that my consultees and supervisees need to work on. That's why I developed this therapist-focused consultation, or TFC. There is so often when I'm doing those kind of sessions that we wind up talking about the client hardly at all because it's all about what needs to be healed, what needs to be resolved within the therapist. And it's amazing if the therapist does her own work, if the therapist does his own work and goes back and reconnects with a much greater understanding and much more recollected, much more in self, much more peaceful, how healing and helpful that is to the client. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Now, I don't want to come down too hard on therapists, okay? It may sound like I just lambasted my profession, and perhaps I did. Perhaps I did. I have said in moments of frustration that if our work as therapists Were as obvious as the work of your hairdresser or your barber. Half of us would be out of business in a heartbeat. I think there's just so much that needs to be done in the human formation of therapists, and there's so little attention paid to it. Therapists have parts that are very focused outward. They want to look for the difficulties and the issues in other people. That's part of the reason why they want to be in the therapist chair. And the old trope that, you know, therapists come into the field because of their own issues. There's a more than a kernel of truth in that. I don't want to come down too hard on therapists, though, because so many of them since are sincere. They're really, they're really trying to help. They've got limitations just like anyone else. Right? But they also have a responsibility by virtue of the profession to do this human formation work. Even if the profession isn't pointing to it as the primary thing. Even if the profession, the secular profession is pointing at professional development, is pointing at continuing education, is pointing at other things other than the essence, the humanity of the therapist, the being with. All right, so let's talk about the seven premises of therapist-focused consultation. Again, these you can find out a lot more about in my three-hour webinar of Beams and Specs Therapist-Focused Consultation. I'll run through these relatively quickly. TFC focuses primarily on the therapist's internal world much more than on the client's inner world. That's the first one. Number two, TFC holds that any internal experience that you as a therapist reject within yourself, you will also reject in your clients, making that topic unsafe and thus off-limits in the therapy work, a no-go zone. So if you cannot handle the intensity of your own anger, it will be very difficult to handle the intensity of a borderline client's anger when it comes off. That will not feel safe because it could trigger or activate your own anger. Or the same thing with grief, or the same thing with unresolved loss, or trauma of any kind, unresolved issues around whatever it is in your life that has harmed you, that has hurt you. Any internal experience, any part of yourself that you as a therapist reject within yourself, you will also reject in your clients. All right. So it's really important to accept the things in the therapist so that the therapist can be available to the clients fully. Third point. TFC is a gentle, non judgmental approach that aids your own human formation as a therapist, but also as a human person. Fourth, TFC helps the therapist to have a deeper sense of peace, security, and well being in the work by emphasizing being with the therapist's own self first, increasing your freedom to be with your clients. You have to be able, as a therapist, to be with yourself. If you can't be with yourself and be at peace with all of your parts, it's going to be hard to be with similar parts that you're uncomfortable with in yourself and anybody else. The counterparts of your parts that you reject or that destabilize you, when you encounter similar parts in a client, it's going to be rough. It's going to be rough. The fifth point. TFC views client resistances as often resulting from the unresolved issues within the therapist system that the therapist unconsciously brings into the therapy work, activating clients' parts and increasing client defect, defensiveness. That happens far more than people realize, far more than clients realize. TFC also sees therapist's insecurity, apprehension, angst, doubt, and internal tension in therapy as primarily stemming from the activation of the therapist's own unresolved issues. The therapist's unresolved issues and lack of integration is thus the fundamental cause of the therapist's agitation and loss of peace in the session. That's the sixth point. But you know what? We often blame it on the client. This client is impossible. This borderline client just is just, just unreasonable when we fail to recognize how much of our own unresolved stuff is happening in there. And then the seventh point, TFC is particularly helpful with working with therapists' sense of inadequacy, fear, irritability, and the, quote, imposter syndrome, end quote, by connecting with the fundamental issues of shame within the therapist that are activated by the therapeutic encounter with challenging clients like borderline clients. Therapist's shame and its effects are a central feature in TFC. Shame is so prominent in so many therapists. It's almost ubiquitous. I'd say it's ubiquitous. It's almost ever-present. And the series on shame, episodes 37 to 49, fundamental to this whole podcast Therapist shame. If therapists could work through their shame, it would free them to be with their clients in so many more beautiful ways. All right. So, what are the five primary benefits for therapists that do TFC, the therapist focused consultation? Number one, improved insight into the therapist's own contributions to the difficulties in therapy. Number two, consultee therapists can take greater responsibility for his or her contributions to the problems in the therapy. Number three, There's greater awareness and integration of the consultee therapist's own parts. Number four, building an internal locus of evaluation in the consultee therapist. Number five, building resiliency and increasing internal resources for the self-regulation in the consultee therapist and greater grounding in stressful clinical situations in the consultee therapist. Those are the benefits for the consultee therapist. One beautiful thing is the client doesn't have to change for the therapy to get better. Because it's the therapist that's contributing to the problems in the therapy. What are the four major benefits for the consultee therapist's clients? These are the client benefits if a therapist does this TFC. One, the client is no longer being blamed explicitly or implicitly for what is not the client's responsibility, for what is really the therapist's responsibility in the therapist. Number two, The client experiences the therapist modeling how to acknowledge his or her own limitations and contributions to the conflict, impasses, and etc. This is the humility of the therapist, the honesty of the therapist, the authenticity of the therapist, owning the mistakes, seeing mistakes as opportunities for growth and for relationship repair. Number three, the therapist consultees awareness of parts can lead to a deeper interpersonal process in the therapy, realness in the relationship. And number four, there becomes greater trust and a more secure attachment in the therapeutic alliance, reduced polarizations, and common factors research indicates that a solid therapeutic alliance is the best predictor of positive treatment outcomes. All right, so enough about that. Let's just briefly review internal family systems now. I like this spiral learning, so I like to go over these definitions many times over the course of many, many episodes of the podcast. Check out episode 71. If you'd like to learn more about the basics of IFS, episode 71, a new and better way of understanding myself and others, but the definition of the innermost self. The innermost self is the core of the person, the center of the person. This is who we sense ourselves to be in our best moments. When our self is free and unblended with any of our parts, it governs our whole being as an active, compassionate leader. We want to be recollected. We want to have our innermost self governing our parts, like the conductor of an orchestra or the leader of a jazz band, leading all the musicians. And there's these eight C's that are part of being in self, the calm, the curiosity, the compassion, the confidence, the courage, the clarity, the connectedness, and the creativity. And when we are in self, we don't have an agenda. We have an overarching goal to be able to love, but we don't have an attachment to some particular means, making something happen in some particular way. And some people, when they're in self, they have this feeling of expansiveness, this warmth, these other ways of, of knowing in their body that they're in that space. All right, so there's the self, and then there's the parts. And parts feel like independently operating personalities within us, each part with its own unique prominent needs, roles in our lives, emotions, body sensations, guiding beliefs and assumptions, typical thoughts, intentions, desires, attitudes, impulses, interpersonal style and worldview. Each part also has a way of understanding God. You can think of these parts as modes of operating, if that's helpful to you. Philosophically, we say that parts have accidental form, but not substantial form. They don't exist outside the person. They're not like separate little persons. They have accidental form, but not substantial form. And parts have these different attachment styles, different ways of connecting interpersonally. These parts are not just emotions. They're not just transitory moods. They're much more complete and full-like than that, and they last over time. They exist even when they're not in conscious awareness. Many parts can reside in the unconscious almost all the time. But that doesn't mean they don't exist. They still can exert an influence even when they are outside of conscious awareness. And the other thing is that parts have good intentions. They are seeking at least a perceived good for us. They are trying to help. They generate impulses. They try to influence the will in some way that they think is going to be helpful to us. Now, if you really want to understand what needs to be healed in borderline personalities, we need to get to the needs. We need to meet the deep underlying attachment needs and integrity needs. Why? Because that helps so much with the process of integration inside. This leads to cooperation and collaboration among parts. And so, spiral learning, I'm going to bring these needs up again. The five primary conditions for secure attachment. I've adapted these from Brown and Elliot. I've recast them as needs to be met. They are from Brown and Elliott's 2016 book, Attachment Disturbances in Adults, and they are safety, recognition, reassurance, delight, and love. I've also added belonging. That's my own addition to the essential attachment needs that so many people have, that borderlines have in spades. Then we also need to meet those six integrity needs, and I've pulled these together from a variety of sources, including my own experience. Those are Survival, importance, agency, goodness, mission, and authentic expression. I went through those needs in a lot more detail in episode 127, the last episode titled Understanding Borderline Personalities Through Internal Family Systems. And in that episode, I introduced you to Tina. Tina is a 32 year old single Catholic woman. Her presentation fits the description of borderline personality disorder. I went through how she meets every diagnostic criteria. She's engaged to Philip. She's a ballroom dance instructor. I detailed seven of her parts, and I went through the story of how all those parts came out in different ways when she was having supper with her fiancé, Philip, leading to this major intense public conflict in a restaurant. So check out episode 127 for the full story. We'll review just the basics here. Tina is now going to therapy. She's bringing her parts with her. Her therapist is Matt, who is a 45-year-old Catholic IFS therapist. He's come highly recommended to Tina. He's married. He has five children. He's been practicing for nearly 20 years. He's seasoned. He's experienced. He has a strong commitment to both his own ongoing professional training and his own human formation. And to review Tina's exiles, remember, exiles are the parts— They were the ones that were in the breach that suffered the relational wounds, the attachment injuries, all that interpersonal trauma. They are the ones that carry the burden of being exploited, rejected, betrayed, disappointed, abandoned in external relationships. And I'm drawing all of these from the list of parts descriptions from the Parts Finder Pro manual. We've got a whole series. It's about three or four dozen different types of parts, maybe 50 uh, parts or so that we see fairly regularly. And when we write the Parts Finder Pro reports for the applicants to our, resi- our Resilient Catholics community, we usually include about 9 to 15 of these parts and how they relate. So I'm using kind of the stock descriptions, but I'm embellishing them a little bit. We do add to these when we write the reports so that folks who are entering in the RCC at least can get a starting point of some hypotheses about who their parts might be, All right? So, Tina's exiles, first an abandoned exile. This exile experiences intense emotional pain, intense distress, this, this feeling victimized, frightened, abandoned, needy, deprived, this, this diffuse sense of identity, very hollow inside. This part bears the burden of relational neglect all of the omissions of love by others and this part feels abandoned by god neglected by god as well right this part has the need for recognition the need to feel seen heard known and understood the need for reassurance to be comforted and soothed this part is in distress all the time and this part really has a deep sense of needing to belong the need to feel included of being a valued member of a of a, of a community so that's one exile and that one is really in this attachment subsystem, right? That's the that's the 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 exile that's at the the center of this whole subsystem in her about needing relationship. I need love, I need attachment, I need connection, I need I need the relationship. I can't lose Philip. Right? The shame bearer is the other exile we discussed. And this shame bearer questions whether Tina could ever be loved by anyone, especially by any man, because the shame bearer has learned that she is unlovable through the experiences of abuse, neglect. She's too damaged. She's too repulsive. She's too much to handle. She's criticized the unattuned acts of commission by others who lacked love in relating with Tina. Tina, shame bearer has this deep sense of inadequacy, right? And this was fueled by early childhood experiences of mistreatment that bordered on emotional abuse, the yelling, the criticism, the shaming from her parents, right? And this part has a deep need to know that she is good, that she's good in her essence, that, that she's ontologically good, that she's not just functionally useful, Right, that deep need to be good, that's an integrity need. All right, so Tina's managers, and the managers are the proactive protector parts who are trying proactively to keep Tina safe from the exiles. They, they strive, they plan, they caretake, they judge, they work strategically. You can sort of see them like the prison guards in the system, you know guarding the exiles. well, she's got this approval seeker who's very focused on gaining approval, recognition, attention from other people. This is the one that's so fueled by the abandonment fears of the abandoned part. So this is the the protector that guards the abandoned part, one of the protectors that guards the abandoned part. her approval seeker deeply believes. That Tina only has value if others recognize her as valuable. And this this part's working so hard to keep people engaged and the hope that they will give her the love that she needs. This part will do so much to try to keep from losing the engagement with Philip. This one is the one that's bringing her into therapy. This one has a long history. This one has a long history of conditional love. And a high emphasis on looking physically attractive to men. This is a primary manager with needs to be seen, heard, known, and understood. With needs to be loved. With needs to belong. And needs also for agency
1: and survival. Now,
0: this one is what Dick Schwartz might call a recruiter. In an IFS understanding of borderline dynamics. So he said in this uh, video called Internal Family Systems Approach to Borderline Personality Disorder, you can look that up on YouTube, it's about three minutes long. He said, I worked with the borderline population for 20 years probably, and as I started to get to know their parts and saw what happened, virtually all of them had been severely abused. Most of them sexually abused as children, and so they had all these exiles, and they didn't know what to do with all the exiles. And so they had a protector whose job was to recruit some other person to take care of those exiles, because they didn't know what to do with them. And that recruiting protector was really talented, often in sucking somebody in, like a therapist to sort of be their parent. But as soon as that therapist got close enough to do any damage to the exile, there was this sort of bouncer rage part who would jump in out of the blue and make the therapist's head spin. But if you understood it the way I just described it, it was totally predictable because you got close enough to do damage, and so then the rage comes in and pushes the person away, and then the recruiting part comes back, trying to pull them back in, and throughout all of this, especially if the therapist gets triggered or starts to distance, then those other scary firefighter activities, and then these other scary firefighter activities start to kick in, like suicide or substance abuse, and then that scares the therapist even more, who gets even more protective, and you're in this vicious cycle. So that's what Schwartz is saying, right? This recruiter this is the one that's tasked herself this is the approval seeker to keep Philip engaged, to keep Philip's love flowing and the hope that he will be able to rescue her." Now, in his excellent article, in his excellent article titled "Depathologizing the Borderline Client in the Psychotherapy Networker, Richard Schwartz said, "Some of these older managers desperately want to find a grown-up." to take care of the basement orphans. These are the recruiters. They search for likely prospects, therapists, spouses, acquaintances, and make use of their charm to recruit those people into the role of redeemer. However, these recruiter parts share with your XLs a sense that you're basically worthless, that as soon as people see how vile you are, they'll bolt. They believe you have to prove yourself special in some way or manipulate people so that they'll continue to play the redeemer role. The recruiters also believe that caring for your exiles is a full-time job, so they try to invade the life of whomever whomever they target, right? So, this approval seeker is the recruiter. She's going to try to cling to Philip. And as she comes into therapy, some of that's going to get transferred to Matt. Some of that's going to be transferred to her therapist. Her therapist could become the redeemer, particularly if the relationship with with Philip, her fiancé, ends or is compromised in some way. So the second manager that we discussed is this hiding part that Tina has. And this hiding part proactively conceals from Tina and from other people, the intensity of her other parts experience, keeping that intensity out of conscious awareness, really trying to keep Tina from being overwhelmed with the intensity of all of these exiles and firefighters. And this cuts Tina off from her own experience and cuts other people off from knowing more of who she really is. And it's understandable because there's a lot of chaos that can happen when these parts come to the front. This hiding part guards and protects against the shame bearer, right? So it's part of that system. And this, this is really about maintaining safety, right? The need to feel a sense of safety and protection so that you can survive. It's about survival. And this hiding part regulates which parts of Tina could be seen or experienced by others, like a wall we talked about, the wall that kind of has like one hole in it, just big enough for one part to get through, usually the approval seeker. And then the firefighter, the charmer, who assumes that all men just want sex, this is the part that's flirtatious, can team up with the approval seeker as a a last-ditch effort to hold on to relationships, right? This one really, again, is trying to hold on to relationships, is trying to protect the abandoned part so that the abandoned part can get those needs for love and approval and acceptance and reassurance met, right? This part really wants to be delighted in. There's a feisty protector. This one is really all about defending against shame, but in an entirely different way. This one's going to use anger. This is what happens when there's felt rejection, when the betrayal comes back up, all of that limit setting and justice seeking in intense ways that can harm relationships. This this one's much more focused on integrity needs, much more focused, not so much on the attachment needs. This one is willing to burn the house down when somebody crosses her, when somebody gets to. Her in such a way that she feels like this integrity is really violated. This one really needs Tina to have this experience of being good and really needs, has this need for authentic expression. These are integrity needs. And then there's finally a self-punisher. This is a, a firefighter that turns anger inward, becomes angry and irritated with Tina herself in this punitive, hard, and unforgiving way. This one is willing to take the blame for anything that goes wrong in relationships, right? So, when Matt
1: encounters Tina, right, he
0: remembers this quote from Stephanie Capecci, who's a licensed clinical social worker. Stephanie said, a borderline personality disorder can certainly make someone uneasy, but with the right treatment and compassionate understanding, it's treatable. And it does not need to be something to fear. Typically, when, p- when people present for therapy, when they come in as therapy clients, it's their managers that are bringing them in. These managers have agendas. They usually want the therapist to join with their agenda in silencing and suppressing the other parts. Those other parts, you know, the ones that have the irrational
1: cognitions, the ones that need to be down-regulated.
0: These managers try to get the therapist to align with their agendas. And you know what? Therapist managers who are not in right relationship with the therapist's innermost self, they may want to align with the client managers as well. There can be this collusion. Why? Because both sets of managers... The managers in the therapist and the managers in the client are afraid of the
1: client's other parts.
0: They're afraid of those exiles. They're afraid of those firefighters. We don't want those firefighters coming up. We don't want any cutting. We don't want any burning. We don't want any suicidal types of behaviors. We don't want any uh, not getting out of bed for days at a time. We don't want binging. We don't want shoplifting. We don't want any gambling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All the kinds of things that firefighters might do. And we don't want this intense grief. We don't want the idea that, you know, you might might harm yourself, which could come from the exiles. We want to make sure that doesn't happen. So you have this collusion often among frightened managers, frightened managers in the client, frightened managers in the therapist.
1: doesn't have to be that
0: way, because really, if you know what you're doing and if you've got some human formation on board,
1: borderline personality disorder is not that scary.
0: It's just not. Psychologist Anthony Pantolino, in his article, 10 Erroneous Therapist Beliefs, 10 Optimistic Therapist Beliefs, and 10 Hopeful Patient Beliefs in Treating Borderline Personality Disorder, listed 10 erroneous beliefs about treating those with borderline personality disorder. Number one, I will burn out if I decide to treat BPD. Number two, I will run up my malpractice premiums and face denial of insurance. Number three, I will not be able to manage the never-ending demands of my patients. Number four, I will not have the necessary skill to treat this population. Number five, I will not have sufficient support to deal with all the conflicts my parents bring to my door. Number six, my borderline patients will take over my practice and leave insufficient time for my other patients. Number seven, sooner or later, I will become the subject of a lawsuit. Number eight, what would I hope to gain from attempting treatment with such a difficult population? Number nine, would the effort be worth the emotional cost to the patient or to myself? And number 10, does my attraction to working with this population really tap into some, into some sort of underlying need on my part to play the hero and save the damsel in distress, so to speak? Matt's worked through those fears. He's not worried about the suicide stuff. He's not worried about malpractice. He's not worried about harassment. He's not worried about any of these things. He's worked through a lot of stuff with his parts. He's ready. Richard Swartz says that therapists typically dread these borderline clients since they can be among their most difficult, unpredictable, and unnerving clients. But if you're not in that place, if you don't have that professional development and you don't have that human formation, you can believe those myths of treating borderline personality clients, you know. You can believe that the client is not safe, that the client is a threat, that you must protect yourself, that you've got to take care of yourself as a therapist. And that all means distancing from the client. An example of this is suicide contracts or no harm agreements they were very popular they've been very popular for about 40 years like most of the time i think as a sort of risk management tool a liability reduction tool you know where you would have the the client sign this contract that they're not going to harm themselves before such and such a time or such and such a date there would be some usually some some actions that they would take and so on and so forth well They've finally started to fall out of favor. A handful of studies and literature reviews that have been done on these indicate no evidence at all that they work. And a recent article called Why Therapists Stop Creating No-Harm Contracts by Ben Caldwell gets into some of the history of that. They're particularly offensive to borderline clients because they're all about protecting the therapist. They're all about protecting the therapist and they communicate to the client, you're not safe. I don't trust you. I want you to sign this piece of paper so that I can demonstrate that I've got some liability protection in the case that you harm yourself, you kill yourself, and I can defend myself against some sort of liability lawsuit. It's not about the good of the client, really. I mean, there's some funny articles out there. I, didn't, I don't have them all cited here about like how ridiculous it is to think that you know, in the heat of the intensity of the agony that they're going to say, oh, wait, I'm not going to harm myself. I'm not going to kill myself because I signed a contract with my therapist. Yeah, the feisty protector that Tina has doesn't give a rat's behind about that contract that the approval seeker signed with Matt. Now, fortunately, Matt actually doesn't use those, right? He knows better than to use suicide contracts or no-harm contracts. But you know, another thing that happens is that these grounding exercises, right? This is another way that therapists compromise the care of their borderline clients, I think, when they're afraid. So what are these grounding uh, what are these grounding techniques? Well, they're simple strategies that can help you disconnect from emotional pain, right? So a way of distracting, by focusing on something else, uh, by creating some other kind of experience. It's, they're big in DBT, in Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, the, and the dialecticalbehavioraltherapy.com website and their section on distress tolerance, T5 Grounding says, the goal of the grounding technique is to help you get in the here and now. When you are overwhelmed with emotions, you often stop being in the present moment. You drift off into an inner world of thoughts. You start revisiting the past. You're thinking about the future. One way to deal with those emotions is to ground yourself back in the present moment. And then they give some examples, right, of how to do that. Crystal Raypole in a September 15th, 2023, Healthline.com article titled 30 Grounding Techniques to Quiet Distressing Thoughts gives things like put your hands in water, breathe deeply, hold a piece of ice, move your body, listen to your surroundings. And there's mental grounding techniques like playing a memory game, making yourself laugh, visualizing a daily task describing what's around you, using an anchoring statement like, I'm John Doe, I'm 31 years old, I live in Menasha, Wisconsin, today is etc., etc. And then there's soothing grounding techniques, practicing self-kindness, sitting with your pets, planning an activity, listening to music, all those things, they sound good, right? You know, the positive uses of grounding. And it works, it helps people to actually come down out of the intensity of their uh, internal experience helps them to regulate their emotions. You know, but again, remember, DBT assumes a unitary personality. It doesn't really get curious about, like, what is all of this stuff that's going on inside? Why is there so much intensity? Could that be parts? Right? doesn't ask that question because think about it in terms of parts. My concern about grounding activities is that they can be used by manager parts with therapist manager parts, aiding and abetting to silence and suppress other parts. Bilateral stimulation can silence and suppress other parts. These grounding activities can be used so that managers can reassert control, tight control over a system to suppress all those parts back into the dungeon back below the surface of the ground, back into their cells. IFS is not big into those grounding techniques, even though they're so popular in so many different trauma treatment modalities. Why? Because in IFS, we believe that if you connect with the parts that are generating all that intensity and you get them to calm down, Because you've recognized them, because you've stayed with them, because you're connected with them, it's going to be so much better. The symptoms will go away. They're not just random. Let me give you an example of this. My son Paul, when he was two and a half years old, had intense periods of anger, intense anger. He was just learning how to talk, you know, and and so when he would get really angry, you could see it in his body. And you know, like two and a half year olds are are prone to he'd act out, right, various ways, kick things, throw things, whatever. Two and a half-year-old, three years olds, like they do. And so I would I would come up to him and I would
1: say to him, "Polly,
0: are you angry? And he would say, Yes. Right? So I'm I'm helping him identify the emotion, right, that he's experienced. I'm helping him put it into words. And I'd say, Polly, is that anger is it big or small? And he would say, It's big. And I'd say, okay, it's a big anger. And Polly, what what color is it, Polly? And he would say, It's red! It's red. So it's a big red anger, Polly. He'd say, yes! And I'd say, Is it hairy or is it smooth? And he would say, It's hairy. Say, it's a big, red, hairy anger. And he would say, yes. And as we worked through all of these dimensions of his anger, he'd calm down. I'm not working to suppress that anger. I'm not working to reground him and get him away from his anger. I want to walk with him through it.
1: I'm engaged with the part that's angry. So the anger can actually dissipate. It doesn't need to be suppressed. I'm anchoring him, I'm grounding him, if you will, in the relationship with me. I'm not sending him to his room where he's got to deal with it to, with it by himself. I'm engaged with him. That's
0: how I want to ground. It's a different way of grounding. I'm concerned that a lot of grounding techniques can be used like medication. They're used to suppress the symptoms, but the symptoms are, are, indic- are indicative of something that's coming up that's really important, some kind of message that parts are trying to convey. This happens all the time with folks who are borderline. They're trying to convey something in the intensity of the emotion or the belief or the desire or the experience inside. I really believe that medications can be used in 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 ways that are really unhelpful as well. Now, I want to say this before I go on. If you find that grounding exercises are really helpful to you in the way that DBT does them or in the way that EMDR does them or other trauma modalities and they're really helpful to you, fine, keep keep going with them. If they really help your whole being, if they help your whole system, go for it, right? Go ahead. I use grounding exercises like these. With my own parts, when all of my parts are in agreement, that it's something going on in the body. Sometimes my body is just really revved up. My parts are all willing to do the grounding exercise. It can be really helpful, right? Same thing with my clients, or same thing when I'm when I'm working with demos or something like that. But when they're weaponized to you to suppress a part, is when they become problematic. Now, sometimes I will also say sometimes you've just got to get certain parts calmed down. If you don't have a relationship with them, sometimes the best thing you can do is help the managers take over the system again. All right. So there's that possibility as well. But that should be a short term thing with an eye to connecting with those parts and not trying to keep them perpetually silenced. Medications can be used also in borderline presentations in ways that I think are inappropriate. Now, I'm not a physician, I don't have licensing privileges, but I get concerned when there are symptoms coming up that are trying to communicate something and we're silencing them neurochemically. I think that's part of the reason why there are so many side effects for effective medications that wipe out symptoms. We call them side effects. And and many of these have no known causal connection with the active neurophysiological agents within the drug. And Uh, What I think is going on is what Freud called symptom substitution. The parts are just finding a different way of expressing the distress that's not being neurochemically blocked. And we're calling it a side effect because it arose in response to to the action of the drug. Freud gave up the use of hypnosis because of symptom substitution. He found that it didn't actually heal or cure, it just stopped the symptom in his clients and then the clients developed new symptoms, and he called that Simpson substitution. I think a lot of what we see in these lists and reams of side effects for effective psychotropic medications that knock out specific symptoms, what we see in those side effects are actually just substituted symptoms that parts are 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 bringing up now because they're going to find a different way to express the distress. I'm also concerned about the misuse of religious practices, especially among Catholic therapists. And what do I mean by this? I'm talking about spiritualizing. I'm talking about spiritual bypassing. I talked about these phenomena in the weekly reflection. Spiritualizing. I talked about in naturalizing and spiritualizing, two errors Catholics make. That's from February 15th, 2023. Go to soulsandhearts.com slash blog, look that one up, or just Google naturalizing and spiritualizing, two errors Catholics make. Also spiritual bypassing, Catholic style. Cause sometimes What happens with with Catholic therapists, and this happens in other other denominations as well, is that when the intensity gets high in the therapists, it's sort of like Jesus take the wheel. The therapist says, "We're gonna crash." Jesus take the wheel. Hi, you know, I want you to meet Jesus, right? So all of a sudden, Jesus is now being brought in because the therapist is kind of freaking out. The therapist managers don't know what else to do. Bringing Jesus in. Let's see if we can pray and so on and so forth. And the reaction can be really intense in borderline clients. It's, you don't want to be with me. You want to shove me off on Jesus. You want to, you want to, you want to make this a spiritual thing. I didn't come here for, 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 for the spiritual stuff. I've got a confessor for that. I've got a spiritual director for that. I want you to be my therapist, right? I really believe that especially with borderline clients, we need to use the human means first with human formation. Then we can get into the spiritual means later once the innermost self of the client is a secure internal attachment figure. But so many times Catholic therapists have this tendency to rush the spiritual aspects of this when they're really not aware of the impact of that on the parts that are present. They're not dialed into, they're not attuned to the God images. That these parts have, because for some of these parts, the whole idea of coming to contact with the living God is terrifying. You know, they don't have a good father image. They don't have a, a basis yet for connecting with God. God seems alien and strange, or even worse, harsh or abusive, especially if there's been spiritual trauma. So, so I'm concerned about a misuse of those kinds of techniques. These kinds of things are most common when the therapist is not well-grounded within his or her own human formation. So, we need to, as therapists, love our clients in ordered ways. I gave a presentation at this at the Society of Catholic Social Scientists meeting in 2007 in New York called Foundations of a Catholic Psychotherapy, a Clinician's Perspective, And the beautiful thing with the therapy with Tina is that Matt is able to love his own parts. He has an ordered self-love. He's not just unblended, but his parts, by and large, are pretty unburdened. Matt's innermost self is a secure attachment figure for his own parts. Therefore, Matt's parts are able to help in the therapy with Tina. So Matt's not just doing therapy with Tina from his innermost self. He's also doing it with his parts. His parts are contributing. Because Matt's innermost self is free, he can, in a sense, turn away from himself. He can deny himself in a way and allow Tina's parts to temporarily rely on his own innermost self for the leadership within her system while fostering unblending and trust in Tina's innermost self, right? So it's a temporary thing. Matt will allow Tina to rely on his innermost self for a little while until he can get more of her innermost self present within her system by inviting that unblending among parts. And he does that without inducing a lot of dependency. He knows he's going to frustrate and disappoint Tina's parts. Matt knows that Tina's getting better, is often going to look on the surface like she's getting worse, like it's getting choppy. Like his feisty part can rejoice when her feisty part comes out in the therapy for the first time, knowing that that's therapeutic progress because it's safe enough for that to happen. He can begin to engage these parts, and his parts can inform him in that because they remember what some of this was like.
1: From their own histories. Matt is
0: not taking things personally from Tina. He knows that what's coming up in all of this intensity is mostly from Tina's past. Nancy McWilliams, in her book Psychoanalytic Diagnosis, says that eventually one learns that one must first just weather these a- affective or emotional storms that seem to keep raging while trying to behave in ways that the patient will experience as different from whatever influences have shaped such a troubled and and help-resistant person. Charles Elliott and Laura Smith said dramatic bouts of anger and rage frequently plague people with BPD. Again, the events that trigger these rages may seem inconsequential to other people. As you can imagine, these explosions often wreak havoc in relationships and may even result in physical confrontations. People with BPD sometimes end up in legal entanglements because of their outrageous behavior. Road rage is a good example of the symptom of BPD, although not everyone who exhibits a road rage has BPD. Matt can handle the anger. He's not going to get destabilized by that. He doesn't struggle with the idealization and, devalu- and devaluation extremes either. Richard Swartz and his Article Depathologizing in the Borderline said, Sometimes I've been idealized. Oh, you're the only person in the world who can help me. Other times I've been attacked with head-spinning unpredictability. You're the most insensitive person I have ever known. Gerald Kreisman and Hal Strauss say that splitting creates an escape hatch from anxiety. The Borderline typically experiences a close friend or relationship, call him Joe, as two separate people at different times. One day she can admire good Joe. Without reservation, perceiving him as completely good, his negative qualities do not exist. They have been purged and attributed to bad Joe. Other days, she can guiltlessly and totally despise bad Joe and rage at his evil without self-reproach. For now, his positive traits do not exist. He fully deserves the rage. This is just different parts. This is just different parts coming up with different ways of understanding Joe, or in this case, Matt. Matt does not need Tina to meet any of his attachment needs or integrity needs. That's really, really important. The therapeutic relationship is compromised the minute the therapist needs his client for anything other than the fee. The only thing the therapist is entitled to out of the therapeutic relationship is the the fee. That's the only thing that the the therapist can lay claim to. He can't lay claim to to any particular emotional reaction from the client. Uh, yes, there's a certain basic respect. He's He is entitled to not being physically attacked. He's not, he's entitled to the, the, the client not setting his office on fire and things like that. But the, the therapist has to be able to weather the intensity of the affect, the intensity of the emotion. So Matt doesn't get destabilized by the intensity of the countertransferences he starts with the managers. He forms a relationship and a trusting alliance with both the approval seeker and the hiding part. Those are the managers. Those are the ones he encounters first. He works with them first. We always start with the managers. He develops a trusting relationship with them. He, his innermost self becomes a secure attachment object for those two managers and then gradually the the hiding part might allow a little more access to the rest of the parts. Now, in the meantime, sometimes those parts will burst through whether the hiding part wants them to or not. Matt deals with them as they come up, but he's always got an eye on the entire system. He knows that whichever part he happens to be engaged with in the moment is just one part of many within Tina. He works with the subsystems. He has this idea of eventually getting to unburden the abandoned part, which is at the root of the whole abandonment subsystem. And he wants to also get to the shame bearer part, which is at the root of that whole subsystem that's based off of integrity needs that that shame bearer has. He works with these parts in a way that's gentle, very consistent, very balanced but still warm and engaged.
1: These parts are looking for love. They haven't experienced
0: the kind of love that they really need yet. Matt is able to stand in persona Christe to be with them in a way that they actually need. Even though parts of them may really rail against it, there's a sense deep inside that Matt
1: actually is present.
0: And in the end, as the therapy continues, as more integration comes in, as parts have a deeper and more consistent sense of being safe of being protected that matt's innermost self can lead and guide the therapy they begin to unblend more and more from tina's innermost self tina's innermost self becomes more familiar less encumbered less eclipsed by the parts freer to lead and guide the system with those eight c's the calm the compassion the clarity the confidence
1: This takes time,
0: but at the end, Tina could say with this inner practitioner on X, this this moniker of the inner practitioner on X, the more you heal, the less you see attention as affection, attachment as connection, codependency as support, disagreement as an attack, enmeshment as intimacy, a lack of boundaries as empathy, external validation as internal self-love, and trauma bonding as healing, right? Inner practitioner in this post on X is laying out the distinctions that those with borderline make as they integrate, as they heal. And the interesting thing, the critical thing is that it's not just Matt's managers working with Tina's managers. It's Matt's entire being being with Tina's entire being. That's what I want for clinicians. The number one thing that gets in the way of that is clinicians' human formation. Number two thing that gets in front of that is their professional development. So, I'm not just going to rail at the darkness here. We're going to light candles. I got lots of candles lit. There are solutions here. I'm going to reach out and speak directly to you Catholic therapists. I have two different options for you to work on your human formation. Two things that I can offer you. First of all, I love it when Catholic therapists join the Resilient Catholics community. The Resilient Catholics community is our year-long human formation process. It's very structured. It's step-by-step. It's entirely informed by IFS. It teaches you these things. It doesn't teach you how to do therapy per se. helps you to become a more integrated human being. It's focused much more basic on that. The therapists who have done the RCC, and we've, we've got uh, more than a dozen of them now, love it. They've generally really, really liked it because they're caring for their own parts. And if there is one profession where we need to care for our own parts, given the demands, given the intensity of the work that we do, it's us therapists. So therapists, Catholic therapists, I want you to check out the RCC. It's 44 weekly sessions. Go to soulsandhearts.com slash RCC. Get serious about your human formation. Look up that. Don't tell me you don't have enough time for your human formation. And it doesn't have to be the RCC. If you want to do it another way, if you want to get into your own therapy, I love that. Do your own therapy there's some other way that you want to do that, that's fine too. The other option for therapists is the interior therapist community. This is where I work with small groups of therapists, 8, 9, 10 at a time, in our foundation's experiential groups, and we do all kinds of experiential exercises to help you get in touch with your own parts. So if you want to work with me personally, that's a possibility in the ITC. Reach out to me, 317-567-9594 if you're interested in that. We'll be starting some new groups in February or March of 2024. We'd like to figure out how much interest there is for those. It's a 10-session course over the course of about six months, every other week roughly. Uh, There's also practicing of IFS techniques with other clinicians that are in that Foundation's Experiential Group. Email me at crisisatsoulsonhearts.com. Text me at 317-567-9594. Let me know you're interested or call me. You can go to slash ITC for a lot more information about the ITC. Now, the RCC continues to be open. This is the Resilient Catholics community again. We're open for new applications in the Resilient Catholics community until December 31st. Really encourage. If you want to learn how to do this, I don't know of a better way. I wish I did. If I knew of another way, I would be pointing you that way. But check that out. Check that out. And also consider, you know, again, IFS informed therapy, IFS informed coaching is a possibility for some folks. Check all those things out. Uh, A couple of words. uh, I can't be your therapist. I know when I do something like this and people say, wow, he really understands what this borderline stuff is like in my life. I want to be, I want, I want to miss my therapist. I get, I get, I get dozens of requests to be somebody's therapist every week, sometimes, sometimes five, six in a day. And I can't, I just can't. So, to ask you to 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 um to go to our our uh, our, our directory we have a directory now soulsandhearts.com therapists uh, you can see catholic ifs informed therapists there you can also check out our our free course at Catholics guide to choosing a therapist we've we've got that up there it's 90 minutes long all the details about finding a good therapist so with that we've got to draw this to a close this has been a really long one so glad that you've stayed with me for so long. So glad that you're on the journey. So glad that you're interested in your own human formation. Again, really invite you to think about, pray about the RCC. If you are eligible for that as a Catholic, uh, we we have all kinds of scholarships that we do to help offset the cost for people that can't afford it. Shouldn't be an excuse. Go to soulsandhearts.com slash RCC. Registration is there until December 31st. Uh, sign up, ask me questions, call me during my conversation hours, 317-567-9594. Conversation hours every Tuesday and Thursday from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Be happy to talk with you about, about that whole process. And the programming for the RCC for this next cohort doesn't begin until March 10th of 2024. So you have to do your Parts Finder Pro. There's a several-week process of discernment that still goes into that So, it's not like you're immediately committed right away. You've got to start all this right away. There's time for us to be able to look at this in a really deliberate and thoughtful way. All right, so I got to stop. So glad that you've been with me. Thank you for being with me on this journey. We'll invoke our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us, St. John the Baptist. Pray for us.